Well, it really is good to be with you. Thank you, Paul, for inviting me, and thanks, everyone, for putting up with me so far. You may all just walk out, who knows, but it's, it's really good to be here, a real privilege. I, I don't know whether you've ever thought, and you, some of you might think, oh, this is a little morbid, but I, I don't know whether you've ever thought what words you would like on your tombstone as your epitaph, if, if there was a, a sentence to summarize your, your life. I, I, I wonder what you'd, you'd like. I mentioned that this morning, and a gentleman in the hallway afterwards, a widower, said, my wife decided what should go on my tombstone. She's buried there, but there's a space for me, and a space for these words, we can't afford it, <laughs> which is an interesting thought. In, um, in, in Leeds, the, the, the main cemetery is in Lawnswood on the, 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 the north of Leeds, and if you were to go there and ask anybody, where is Ethel? they would tell you. Now that's all we have as far as engraved words about her life. But the sculpture, her gravestone, if you want, her memorial stone, tells it all. It, it's, it's carved out of marble. It's about nine feet high. And it has the, the doorposts of an outside door. And the door itself is open. And she's standing there. And, and she's like this. And all we have is the word Ethel. But everybody knows. The reason that she's sculptured like this is that uh, apparently that's how she spent all her time. At the front door, longingly looking for her husband to come back from the pub. And so when she died, the neighbours all put their money together and, and Ethel still stands in Lawnswood Cemetery. I'm going to have on my tombstone the words, he wouldn't be here yet if it wasn't for cheese on toast. But I just love it. I, I just, it's so wonderful. Every time I eat it, I think, Roger, this is killing you. And then I think, yes, but isn't it worth it? It's gorgeous. And especially if there's a layer of Marmite between the cheese and the toast. And as somebody said to me on the way out, they said... Um, they said, oh, I love cheese on toast with Marmite, but I'm married to a man who doesn't like Marmite. So I told her off for being unequally yoked. And she said, yes, I, yeah. anyway, there we are. Epitaphs. Now, the reason I mention all this, when we read a story, as Dan just read to us from Luke's Gospel, about Jesus being crucified, and on either side of him were these two thieves, what epitaphs would suitably summarize the lives of these two common criminals and Jesus in the middle? This was death by crucifixion. It was cruel. It was callous. You don't have to stretch your imagination very far to think how awful, how gruesome this death was. How would you summarize these lives? Normally in the world where there's capital punishment, it is quick and it's private. Crucifixion was devised to be slow and public. It was meant to be a deterrent. This was an awful scene. How do you summarize their lives? Now, while you're thinking along those lines, let me introduce you to a book in the Bible, which is a very important book. It's the, the first letter, not the first, sorry, the letter of, of Paul to the Romans. It's, it's not a great title, but human beings made up the title. God worked in the mind of Paul so that he wrote as, um, as, 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 as he was inspired by God. And that is great. Paul was the man who was converted on the road to Damascus to round up Christians and have them imprisoned. But he met with the risen, ascended Jesus. 
And, oh, his life was changed, completely transformed. And he spent the rest of his life, 30 plus years, traveling the then known world, going to places like Greece, and we call it Turkey now, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, churches were established and built, and he used to write to them and encourage them and strengthen them, etc. But he'd never been to the capital city of Rome. And, and as a youngster, I'm sure he longed one day to go to Rome. And as a Christian, that was his great desire as well. He wanted to go and preach there. When he went, actually, he went not so much as a preacher, but as a prisoner. Though he did continue to tell people about Jesus. But because he'd not yet been to Rome, he wrote a letter to them where he spelled out the Christian message, the gospel message. He explains it very, very clearly. He wanted them to be certain that they'd understood what Christianity is all about. And he begins by talking about God and then about human beings and our rebellion against God. And he describes very graphically in chapter 1, the sort of man in the raw, the sinfulness, a rotten man. And then he goes on in chapters 2 and 3 to describe religious man and refined man. But he comes to the conclusion at the end of chapter 3 that whether you're man in the raw, religious or refined, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And then he goes on to describe what is God's answer to the problem of our sin. And of course the answer that God has is to do with Jesus. The fact that Jesus has come into the world and come with the express mission that he's going to go to a cross and in dying on the cross he would carry on himself our sin. So the justice of God and the love of God meet together at the cross of Christ where Jesus has died for us. He satisfied his Father's justice as he paid the penalty for our sin. And, 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 and in, in sort of coming to a climax in his arguments at the end of chapter 6, he says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the book of Romans continues and he applies the message of the cross and explains its implications uh, to, to society and to individuals. But for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Three phrases in that one sentence. And actually, they make three very apt epitaphs for the three people crucified outside Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago. For the wages of sin is death. What, a, what an epitaph for this criminal who refused to trust Jesus Christ. It's the cross of rebellion. And then, but the gift of God is eternal life. Epitaph number two for the second, for the second criminal who did trust Jesus Christ. This is the cross of repentance. And then in the centre, through Jesus Christ our Lord, this is the cross of redemption. So these two thieves, I don't know how they got involved with crime, whether they were just little mischievous boys, and then eventually became teenagers, and of course their mischief turned more to criminality, and then eventually, was there something political in what they were doing? Were they against the idea of Roman soldiers on every street corner, or was it just selfish criminality? But eventually, the long arm of the law caught up with them, and, and I've never actually stood in a dock in a court of law, but I can imagine as you stand and you wait for the, the, the judge to pronounce the sentence, I, I think I'd go completely weak, wouldn't you? And, 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 and then to hear the words, you're sentenced to death by crucifixion. 
And this man is taken out and crucified. The wages of sin is death, literally, physical death. Now, in the Bible, when we read about death, death does not mean annihilation. Death means separation. The Bible says that we are born spiritually dead. We were created to know God, but actually we're born with with a bias, a nature that's going to be antagonistic toward God. We're born spiritually dead. We're, We're born with this sort of separation between us and our God. And when people die physically, what happens is that their their spirit and their soul is separated from their body. This man was spiritually dead. He becomes morally dead as he continues his life of sin. Now he's going to die physically. The wages of sin is death. But, But I have a question, and I don't know the answer to this. Why did this criminal, say this one on this side, I don't know which side it was, but we'll say this one. Why did he not also put his trust in Jesus Christ like his friend on the other side of Jesus did? He had absolutely nothing to lose, did he? Why didn't he just turn and say, oh Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom as well as him? Was it pride? Can a man who's been crucified be, be proud? Who knows? He may may have thought, well, I've lived my life without God. I'll die without God and I'll face the consequences. Or was it, um, I I don't know, there's time. Crucifixion can be a lingering death. It can take days. When night comes and the crowds dissipate and and it's just a Roman soldier or two and, and, and we three on the cross, then I also, when nobody can hear, I'll whisper, say, Jesus, remember me as well. I I don't know. But for some reason, this man who's lived for sin dies without any hope that his sin has been forgiven. He's a lost soul. He's he's in hell. The wages of sin is death. But now this criminal, this thief, oh, how different. He'd lived a similar sort of life. And, And he too had stood in a dock, as it were, and heard the sentence... Death by crucifixion. He, he knew exactly what it meant and, and, and he's, he's gone through all this physical, emotional suffering and the trauma of hanging, suspended naked between heaven and earth. He, he's experiencing it all and yet something happens and he changes. And again, I, I don't know what precipitated it. I sometimes wondered whether the blasphemy of this guy over here put in the mind of this man the thought of God. I remember once I was buying a big pile of second-hand books in Leicester. And uh, I'd found them in a second-hand bookshop. And I thought, oh, this is a real bargain. And I'd taken across, put them on a counter. And there was a lady ahead of me. And she just turned and looked at this big pile of books and said, Good God. And I turned and I said, He is, isn't he? When you think he loves us, even though we just use his name lightly, he is a good God. And she looks at me. I, I, I think I, I did, did well to get out of there without being thumped. But anyway, but, but, you know, it's amazing how people just use the name of God or Jesus or Christ so lightly. But maybe the blasphemy of this man made this man think about God. And he goes through four stages in his thinking and in his speech which lead to Jesus turning and saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, interestingly, these four steps that he took are the same four steps that everybody who ever becomes a Christian takes. So Ali took those same steps. I have taken these same four steps. I don't suppose this this dying thief thought I'm setting a pattern that everybody's going to follow. But nevertheless, there is a pattern here. Look at them carefully. First of all, he thought about God. 
Now we know this because if you look at it, verse 40, but the other criminal rebuked him, don't you fear God? He began to think about God. Now, there are various reasons why somebody thinks about God. They might walk away from a car crash and think, I, I should never have survived this. And they thank God. Maybe it's when a, a doctor says, now sit down, I've got something very serious to tell you. Maybe they just enjoy spring. You know, the blossom, the, the, the new bright colours of spring and the, 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 the light. I don't know, maybe they have a lovely meal or, uh, I was going to say, see a lovely sunrise, but there are one or two of you who are students... I'll introduce you to the idea of sunrise one day. But let's say a lovely sunset, maybe that's better for you. But you've got the idea. Something happens and they think, oh yes, there is a God. And he begins to think about God. Now, I don't know what he knew about God. I imagine he came from a Jewish background. I don't know, but I imagine he did. He would know that there is just one God. He would know that God is holy and just and loving a God who doesn't change. He would know that God knows all things and can do all things and he's everywhere. He would know these things. He would know as well that he will stand before God in judgment. He begins to think about God. That's the first step to becoming a Christian. I, I have met people who've said, well, I am a Christian, but I don't, don't really believe in God. And I say, now look, I know what you mean, but actually you're not a Christian because he who comes to God must believe that he is, the Bible says. But then he begins to think about his sin. Now, it's, it's, it's very easy for us to think, oh, this is a criminal. He's dying. He's, you know, this is capital punishment. He's a bad man. And okay, he, he has sinned, but we all have sinned, haven't we? Sin is really the breaking of God's commandments. It's not loving God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. It's not loving others as we ought. Sin is pushing God to the edge of the plate of our lives. Or, as, as Ali so carefully explained, clearly explained, sin is really saying, I'm going to rule my own life. That's what sin is. <laughs> I, I was taking a series of meetings at the London School of Economics a few years ago, and um, I was there for a week, and in the afternoons there wasn't much of a program, and I just enjoyed wandering around, looking in the little shops and um, seeing all that was happening around that area of London. And I went into a really off-the-wall bookshop, weird and wonderful things they were selling. And as well as the, the books, there were some cards, greeting cards, and I was just nosing at these. And, and there was one I thought, oh, now that is interesting. The trouble is, it was pound fifty. For a greeting card. And I'm from Yorkshire. So I thought, right, I'm not going to buy this. I'll memorise it instead. And um, it, 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 it had, a, had a picture of Mae West, you know, the, the actress from 1920s and 30s, with a big speech bubble coming from her mouth saying, I used to be Snow White, but I drifted. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I don't know that I was ever Snow White, but I too have drifted. It's interesting because I was, I was preaching at Holy Trinity Platt in Manchester, Couple of, well, a year last February, I think it was, and I mentioned this. And somebody in the congregation very, very kindly found the greeting card and sent me a copy. So I was really pleased. So last time I was at Holy Trinity Platt, I mentioned that I'd seen a Van Gogh. <laughs> it, just, it just didn't have the same impact. I don't know why, but there we are. But I used to be snow white, but I drifted. The Bible says all have sinned. And this man was aware of his sin. He thought of God, he thought of his sin, and then he thought of Jesus. It's, it's all here, look. Don't you fear God, verse 40, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. And then he thinks about Jesus, but this man has done nothing wrong. 
Now, how he knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong, I have no idea again. You know, was he there when Jesus was preaching to the crowds and, and took loaves and fish and multiplied them and fed everybody? Did, did, did he know somebody who had been blind and yet Jesus healed him? Or a leper whom Jesus had made whole? Or was he there at the trial of Jesus when Pilate had said to the crowds, you want him crucified? Why? What evil has he done? I find no fault in him. I don't know. Was it just the way Jesus reacted when he was scourged and beaten and crucified? This man has has done nothing wrong. He saw something in Jesus. He thought of God. He thought of his sin. He thought of Jesus. But interestingly, he still hasn't received that assurance from Jesus. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Because there has to come a fourth, final, decisive step. And he took it. He put his trust in Jesus. He turned, as it were, from the position on the cross and looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, some translations translate it, Lord, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now it's interesting because at the foot of the cross was Mary, his mother, and, and St. John, John the disciple, but he didn't feel he had to go via them to Jesus. He went directly to the Lord Jesus. And so may you and I. We are invited to go directly to the Lord Jesus Christ and he put his trust in Christ now he didn't say Jesus I'll give you all my money because <laughs> it was probably ill-gotten gain anyway and what's the point of money when you're dying and anyway Jesus is the one who's created all things what's the point of that he didn't say from now on I'll follow you he's dying he had nothing to commend himself to Christ he literally had to throw himself on the mercy of Jesus Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus turned and said to him Today you'll be with me in paradise. Wow, I cannot imagine any sweeter words to hear from the Lord Jesus than that, can you? Today you'll be with me in paradise. You see, heaven is not a reward. Heaven is a gift. I think that's a great sentence. It's not original. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said that. Heaven is not a reward. It is a gift. And here is this man who certainly doesn't deserve heaven. He does deserve hell. But then don't we all? But Jesus promises him, promises him heaven. Why? Because he put his trust in Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. I, I, I don't know whether you know the name A.J. Cronin. Those of you who love novels will know that name. His greatest work is called The Citadel, but he's, he's most well known because he wrote the Dr. Finley case book stories. He qualified as a doctor, um, just as a young man, and this was going back to the 1920s. And um, the first real position of responsibility he had was to be in charge at night of a little cottage hospital in the valleys of South Wales. And this was the first night he was alone in the hospital on duty. Now, I have to say, if I was a patient, I wouldn't want to know it was his first night. But there we are. But, but there are lots of things about doctors. I, I don't like the way doctors practice medicine. It, it just doesn't, anyway, it doesn't inspire me with confidence, but we'll leave that for the moment. But he was, he was on duty for the first night. And, and there was a young nurse, newly qualified, and um, she was on duty that night as well. About midnight, he tells us, a little girl, nine years of age, was brought in 
and she had diphtheria. Now, I, I don't know much about medical matters, but I'm just recalling what, I, what I've read from him, that um, they had to make an incision in her throat here, and they got a tube, and they put it down her throat so that she could breathe. And, and when they did it, very, very quickly, the sort of brightness came back to her face, this little girl in the operating theatre, and clearly it worked, it had been successful. And eventually, they took her to the, the ward, and they put her in a bed. And then Dr. Cronin said to the nurse, now look, I'm going to go and have a few hours sleep, but just keep a very close eye on her. Now, if that tube gets blocked, just take it out and clear it and put it back. Don't panic, you've got time, but that's all you need to do. But anyway, if you need me, you know where I am. And he went and slept for a few hours when suddenly there was a rushing, running down the, the corridor. Dr. Cronin, Dr. Cronin, come quickly. Well, he quickly threw on some clothes and ran down, went to the ward, and he saw very very quickly what had happened. This little girl had died. The tube had become blocked and the nurse had panicked and everything went wrong. And Dr. Crony was, he was furious, he was livid and he really gave her a piece of his mind. He said, come and see me in my office tomorrow. Well, the next morning, this young nurse went and he made a stand on the other side of the desk. He was seated and he just read a letter that he'd written, he read it out loud to her that this girl was qualified registered as a nurse, she's not fit to be a nurse she shouldn't have been registered, now she is she should be struck off the list and then he recalls exactly what happened there. her head went down on her chest and tears rolled down her cheeks and she just said, please Dr. Cronin would you, would you give me one more chance please give me one more chance and the way she said it just sort of struck him, he said, well think about it see me tomorrow and then he describes what happens. That night, I don't know quite how, in a dream or a vision, or, I have no idea. He said, Jesus appeared to me and said, Dr. Cronin, isn't that what you once asked me to do for you? Give you one more chance. And he said, I, I prayed, oh Jesus, forgive me for what I nearly did. The next day, when the nurse came, he said, look, sit down. And he took the letter, and in front of her, he just ripped it up and threw it away. And he adds as a footnote later on, she went on to become the senior matron of Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. She was given one more chance. On the authority of not only this story, but what the Bible says, I want to say, God is the God of the second chance. He's the God who knows we've messed up. He knows our sins. He knows our lives. He knows everything there is to know about us. He knows how sin sort of squeezes all that should be right and proper out of us. I remember just as a boy, what, 11, 12 in secondary school, I went to an all-boys school in Leeds and... We used to, be, you know, we were all given a book and we were read it out loud, etc. And one of them was called Toilers of the Deep. And it was a great book for 11-year-olds because it was, it was full of adventure. But the only thing I remember was the story of a young guy who filled his lungs with air as he dived into the Pacific Ocean off one of the islands in the Pacific to, to go looking for, for, for pearls in oysters. And he, he went to a particular crevice underwater and he put out his his hand and he, he got hold of the, the oyster shell when suddenly he felt something on his flesh 
and then something else and something else. And within moments, an octopus was just wrapping its tentacles around this guy and squeezed the life out of him. Sin does that. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Whoever you are, however you've lived, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you've been involved in, there is a God who knows us and cares for us and is willing to forgive the past and start all things over again. And that's because of this third cross, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hanging, suffering, bleeding, dying on a cross, Jesus carried on himself not just the sin of these thieves, but your sin, my sin, our sin, laid on him. And he, out of love for us, paid the penalty it would take us all eternity to pay. But he is the eternal one. And he carried our sins on the cross. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Is that the epitaph? Well, I've got to be honest and say, there is no epitaph for Jesus because yes, he died. He paid for our sin. When he fully paid for our sin, he cried out in the original language, just one word. In our Bible, three words. It is finished. Finished was his word. He, he paid for sin. He dismissed his spirit. He gave up the ghost. They took him down. They buried him. And there he remained for three days and nights until that first glorious Easter Sunday morning when the stone rolled away. Not so much to let out Jesus, but to let us look in and see he's risen. He's alive. So there is no epitaph for Christ. Political, religious leaders throughout history have got their epitaphs, but not Jesus. There's an empty tomb. There's no grave where he lies. He rose again. He's ascended to heaven. He lives and he longs to be able to say to us, yes, I give you eternal life. Paradise. But eternal life isn't just quantity, it's quality, it's spiritual life, here and now, it's God coming to live within us God making all things new God taking us through life's journey one day taking us through death and then to be with himself forever in heaven so, the question is which side of the cross are you on? which of these two thieves are you following? the cross of rebellion or the cross of repentance the cross that says no for whatever reason I, I'm not going to trust Jesus or the cross that says well yes I, I, I have done wrong I know I'm guilty I know there is a God and yet here's Jesus I want to put my trust in him Jesus would you remember me and they all, the answer is always yes I will I'll make you my child my son my daughter I love you with an everlasting love and I'll take you through life's journey, through death, and then into eternity. So it's hell or heaven. Rejection of Jesus or repentance and faith in Jesus. I mentioned earlier when Paul interviewed me this moment in my life, which was like the hinge which changed the whole direction of my life, where I asked Jesus Christ to become my Lord and Saviour. And I would like to ask you, if I may, lovingly, I don't know you, but I want to ask you, have you ever truly trusted Christ? And if not, why not? And if not, why not today? What you do with Jesus is more important than where you put the cross last Thursday on a ballot 
paper if, you, if they managed to let you in. But um, that is much, much more important because what we do with Christ matters for eternity. And I would like to close my part of this service to, well, by inviting you to pray with me a prayer very similar to the one that I prayed when I became a Christian, a prayer of saying, yes, I do want to trust Christ. I want to pray slowly so that you can repeat the words in your mind and heart and make them your own. You don't need to repeat them out loud, but just make them your own. And say, oh, Lord Jesus, I want to trust you today. Uh, And if you pray with me, I'd like you to do one other thing. Don't don't be worried about it. But Paul, the vicar of the church here, and I will be in the foyer by the door. And we'll both have this little booklet called Trust in Christ. And it simply explains what it means to become a Christian. And there's a prayer very similar to the one that uh, I'm about to pray here. And then some tips about living for the Lord Jesus. And I'd like you to come to Paul or to me and just say, I'd like one of those booklets, please. Or, I prayed with you today. And we'd like to give you one, and I know you'd find it helpful. Please don't come and say, could I have one for somebody else? Because it's not for somebody else. It's for you, if you know that you've either prayed with me to trust Christ, or you just want to know a little bit more about what it means to become a Christian. Now, Paul has already mentioned Christianity Explored, and there are these cards, I think, in the pews or at the back. I know this course very well, and... um, it lasts, what is it, two, four, six, seven, eight weeks or something like that. And, and it digs into what Christianity is all about by looking into Mark's gospel, one of the biographies of Jesus. And as Paul said, it tries to look at Mark by, and answer our questions as well as allowing the real Jesus to walk off the pages of the Bible and introduce himself to us. It's a great course and I recommend it. I really do. Now, you might think, well, that's a big commitment all those weeks. Try it for the first week. I think you'll enjoy it and become quite hooked. and You'll love it. But I really recommend that. But don't wait till a week on Tuesday for Christianity Explored to begin. I would urge you today, if you know you're not right with God and you need to, to say, yes, I want to do what that man did all those years ago and put my trust in Jesus. I'm going to pray. I invite you to pray with me and I'll pray slowly so that you can repeat these words and make them your own. Dear God, thank you that you know everything that there is to know about me. I want to say I am sorry for my sin. And with your help, I want to turn from it. Thank you that Jesus died for me. Thank you that he rose again from the dead. Please forgive me. Come and live within me. Become my Lord, my Savior, my friend, and help me to follow you. For I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, each one.